on air, online, on digital, digital. and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Today, using good bugs to deter the bad bugs in the berry patch. And they're very keen to work out how they can do things in the best possible way, to do things in the most sustainable way, and um, to make their businesses more profitable as well. These are really big businesses. They have lots of overheads. So anything we can do to kind of equate those costs in terms of pesticide applications is something that they're really keen to, to find out more about. And the proposal to farm kangaroos on a trial basis. One of the most interesting things about kangaroos, of which there are many, is that they don't produce much methane. Uh, it's about um, many times less than that which comes 12 times less carbon dioxide equivalents per kilogram of meat compared to a kilogram of beef. Kangaroo farming, you might have some thoughts about that. 0438922936 is that number. That story coming up along with details about how friendly bugs are taking care of the nasties in the berry patch. G'day, Tony Briscoe with you on this Tuesday. Also coming up today, the Hemp Association's President, Tim Schmidt, talks about the expansion of the industry. There is a wind farm conference underway in Hobart. We'll learn more about that in a moment. And we delve into the area of traditional pain relief using the bark of a tree, believe it or not, and eventually coming up with a special gel. That story later in the program. And we check the latest on the weather as per normal and take your thoughts via that text line number 0438. 922936. Wind farms and the challenges ahead for the renewable industry are under discussion at a conference which began this morning in Hobart. John Titchen from Goldwind Australia says it's an important event for the industry heading into the future. Over the next three days, we've got the World Wind Energy Conference um, in Hobart. The theme of the conference is the Symphony of the Renewables, uh, really drawing on the combination of Tasmania's heritage in renewable energy, hydro development and uh, increasingly wind development uh, uh, going forward. The conference was um, opened by uh, the Honourable Peter Ray. He's the president of the World Wind Energy Association. Uh, We also had an excellent address from Minister Dugan, um, Minister for Energy and Renewables, and addresses by uh, the International Renewable Energy Agency, really outlining the scale of the challenge um, up to 2050 uh, to achieve net zero emissions and stabilising the uh, climate at a one and a half degree increase in temperature. And also um, Simon Stolp from the World Bank, a Tasmanian, uh, now representing the World Bank um, for South Asia. So really, you know, excellent uh, group of uh, international presenters and attendees at this conference. And John, you're saying international. How many delegates are, are coming to, to the conference? I believe it's around 150 delegates from around the world, Tasmania, Australia, um, at this conference. Uh, we've had uh, people dialling in from uh, around the world this morning uh, to make presentations and also uh, people directly participating in, in Hobart at, uh, at Rest Point. You know, a great, a great place for this conference. Now you say it's a, a, called a symphony, um, but sometimes a symphony sounds really great, but sometimes it might be a bit disjointed. Is, is it um, discussing all those disjointed issues, are that the challenges ahead, the challenges that you're, you're seeing at the moment? Is that um, a big part of it? Well, the the challenge up to 2050 is really to triple 
the scale of electricity production in order that um, emissions are reduced and moving that electricity production from around um, just over 25% wind, solar, hydro um, to more than 75% uh, wind, solar and hydro. So the, the scale of the international task is really immense. Um, there are challenges in terms of uh, bringing all the elements together uh, but when it, when it is brought together well, it does it does work like a symphony. And I think in the Tasmanian example, we do have the strong benefit of the hydro schemes and the significant energy storage, along with uh, other developments such as you know the interconnections to the mainland and the interchange of resources, uh, both um, within the state and and, and the interstate. It's a, a very interesting example in the global scene. Now, offshore wind will be uh, part of this uh, discussion over the next three days, I believe? Uh, yes, I would expect there to be some uh, presentations on, on offshore wind, and, and that's certainly an emerging sector in Australia. A lot of, lot of activity, a lot of exploration of, um, of feasibility and uh, government processes that have been um, initiated in order to facilitate that industry. And also the connections too. Farmers are very interested in, in the future, uh, the future of hosting uh, wind towers, the future of transmission lines crossing uh, prime ag- agricultural land. Are they all part of what's going to be discussed over the next few days? Yeah, certainly there's a strong um, community engagement uh, theme uh, in, in this conference. Uh, we've got a number of streams of, of discussion on how to consider and and uh, and act on community needs um, uh, through this process. We had a, a fantastic uh, a welcome to country this morning, Dr. Um, Auntie Patsy Cameron, who was actually brought up in the northwest of Tasmania and was describing her her view of the Musaro uh, wind farm that was developed uh, near where she was brought up, and it was great a great example of that connection to um, Indigenous heritage and uh, and that perspective. It was, it was really excellent to see, but certainly you know, the footprint of these assets are quite significant, um, wind, uh, solar, transmission, and, and that's a, a really strong focus for all in the industry going forward. John Teachin from Goldwind Australia on the three-day wind conference in Hobart, which began this morning. We'll bring you some more stories from that particular conference over the next few days. Well, the problem of invasive insects in a berry patch has in the past been controlled by spraying chemicals. Did you know that over time insects can develop a resistance to those chemicals, kind of like humans? There's a whole bunch of ways farmers can deal with that problem, but one of those is getting the other bugs to come and eat the bugs you don't want. Reporter Meg Powell caught up with an entomologist, someone who studies insects, John Finch on a berry farm. So today we're meeting um, at Burlington Berries, which is one of the biggest berry producers in the state. Um, and particularly we're talking today about how they manage their pests. So a lot of our research is about how we manage pest insects. And we do that primarily using chemical sprays, but also by using beneficial insects as well. So these are things like lacewings, ladybirds, uh, parasitic wasps, and also other kinds of pol- um, beneficials as well, like pollinators are really important. Right. So your, that's your, primarily your interest is in getting beneficial insects to eat the others, essentially? Yeah, basically. So we're not very popular with the insects, but the yeah. growers seem to like it. Um, 
So what we try and do is to um, to help growers understand how to manage those beneficial insects. And basically that comes down to two things. It's about creating a habitat on the farm, which is really helps produce those insects so it has lots of flowers lots of plants lots of places for spiders and things to live and hide and it's also about trying not to spray hard chemicals too often so really thinking about when you're spraying do you really need to spray uh, evaluating what you're spraying so maybe there are some softer things that you could actually use that aren't going to disrupt your uh, predators as much um, and one of the benefits of that is it's also what's good for the predators is often also good for the pollinators so that means that you're not disrupting your pollination and hopefully you're uh, not um, working against your crop being productive so what's the benefit why why are we trying to steer away from pesticides or whatever there's lots of good reasons um one of the uh, main reasons is because pesticide resistance is an issue so we know that over time if you use an insecticide or a herbicide or whatever too much then what you'll find is that pesticide is going to stop working so what we want to do is to encourage growers to use them a bit less frequently and if we want to do that we have to give them other options of how to control and manage their pests Um, another benefit is that pesticides cost money running a tractor spraying Uh, getting the labour to do all that, that costs money too. So if we can help to reduce farmers' overheads uh, in terms of spraying chemicals, then we can make their businesses hopefully more profitable and also more sustainable as well. So we're putting less of these potentially quite harmful but very necessary chemicals uh, into the environment. I'm a a farmer. I've got a a crop full of um, aphids, for example. Um, I need some, I guess I need some ladybugs. I'm not really sure. What do I do? Do I order a box online? Yeah, so so, yeah, it's a really good question. So what we, um, the first step is always trying to get farmers out into their fields and really look at what's going on and try and find out, you know, okay, so there are the aphids here, but is that amount of aphids actually a problem? Like, will it just go away by itself? Uh, Do I need to be worried? So we teach farmers to monitor their crops, to count aphids, and then hopefully we can give them the tools then to make a decision, like a scientifically backed decision that says, okay, at this level of aphids, I need to spray this, or maybe I'll just walk away. Um, But yeah, if you do find a certain number of pests, uh, aphids, for example, in your crop, there are definitely companies you can go away and you can buy a bunch of predators from them and release them into your crop, and they'll hopefully get in there and start uh, massacring those uh, aphids uh, and keep those numbers down so that you don't have to spray so yeah basically what we do is we try and give growers the tools to be confident in decision making and sometimes be confident in spraying or confident in not spraying as well so they understand what the outcome of those decisions is going to be the world of bugs it's so violent yes well this is my life um you know there's good and bad there's uh, obviously good bugs and bad bugs uh but we do need to tolerate a small level of bad bugs so even some pests have to be tolerated in a crop uh in order to provide food for our good bugs because we want the the bugs to hang around too but yeah it's a it's a violent world out there <laughs> Um, and how how are farmers in the berry industry adopting this so far? Are they receptive to it? Are they not? Yeah, so the berry industry is really receptive to, um, to what we want to do and talk to them about. I think that's because it's a pretty young industry. Um, so, you know, the berries, obviously berries have been around for a long time, but berries in a big way is probably only about a decade, decade old, and they've really gone undergone like a huge expansion in that time so there's lots of very young very progressive people coming into the industry and they're very keen to work out how they can do things in the best possible way to do things in the most sustainable way and um, to make their businesses more profitable as well these are really big businesses they have lots of overheads so anything we can do to kind of equate those costs in terms of pesticide applications um, is something that they're really keen to to find out more about anything you want to add to all that john 
I'd say that really good pest management in terms of any pest, whatever it is, uh, is really about thinking about all your different kinds of control. So usually we talk about chemical control, that's your pesticides. We talk about t- cultural control, which is things you can do in your crop, picking certain varieties, um, uh, practicing good crop hygiene, and also biological control. So that's things like using beneficial insects to eat the the pests that you don't want and what we try and get growers to do is called integrated pest management which is basically bringing together chemical cultural and biological controls all at the same time it's different to something like organic organic generally you're not allowed to use any chemicals but in ipm we um, definitely allow for the use of chemicals we just try and reduce them to when they're not really uh, only use them when absolutely necessary is what we say but they're still part of a really productive and vibrant industry so we kind of support that holistic idea about pest management um lastly favorite insect it's a really good question um i'm very much a fan of uh the tasmanian bumblebee Uh, i introduced bumblebee they're fascinating they're very cute Uh, they perform amazing jobs and we're the only part of australia that has bumblebees so they're kind of unique part of our fauna Um, i've also got a very big soft spot for lots of spiders which aren't insects but are very cool Okay. And are also very important beneficials in our gardens and in our uh, agricultural production systems as well. So big up to the spiders. Hate to hear it, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture entomologist John Finch talking to Meg Powell about reducing chemical use in farms using natural methods like bugs to come and eat the pests. And he's a big fan of the spiders and the bumblebee. Well, Ben Cook is an assistant farm manager at Pinata Farms in Orielton. He says it's vital to try and reduce insecticides, and they use a system called integrated pest management. It's really important. It has been for several years now to uh, try and minimise the amount of chemicals you're putting in pesticides you're putting into the environment. So yeah, it's and, and it's also safer for your workers. So it's yeah, and it's safer for the bees, which are a real critical um, problem at the moment. Is it something you're using down here as well at Orielton? It is, yeah. Pinata Farms has um, used an IPM program for quite some years. Um, Pinata Farms is based in Queensland. This is a satellite farm, but um, yeah, we've been using it for uh, since the farm started in 2020. How are you using it? I'm I'm curious about the details. What what are you? What bugs have you got? What are you using to eat the other bugs? Yeah, um, we. We do. We have a scouting program, so we employ. We actually employ a contractor um, and a consultant, and they come in and they do a scouting every uh, two weeks, and they inform us of what they've found. Basically, so they're just walking around looking at. They're plants? walking around with a little notebook and their little white bucket that they bash the, the leaves against to um, dislodge any of the animals, and so they can see all the different bugs and everything that come out of the foliage and the fruit of the plants, and yeah, they can identify the, what we've got whether they're good bugs or bad bugs uh, and then they report back to us in terms of how many there are and how much of a problem it's going to be and what we probably need to do about it. Have there uh, in your short stint down there have there been times where there's been bad bugs? Too many of them? There's always bad bugs but there's always good bugs as well so it's all about balance uh, and we are just trying to mimic natural balance really so that to a certain extent, but also we've got a commercial side, so we've got to make sure the fruit is always in perfect condition. So, yeah, you've just got to make sure that the bug, the bad bugs don't reach beyond a certain threshold. Uh, but if they do, then, yeah, you need to probably release more good bugs. Get some other bugs in. Yeah. So you don't want to get rid of the bugs completely? No, there's situations where if you release the good bugs and there's no bad bugs, well, the, bad, the good bugs don't have anything to eat, so they bugger off and go somewhere else. So you spend a lot of money on getting good bugs in and then they don't actually do any benefit to your crop. 
So you've got to have a baseline population, preferably, before you do any release. Something I've learned today is that the insect world, it's a, it's a brutal world, really. It is, yes. It's yeah. a struggle for resources. It's a continual war. <laughs> <laughs> it absolutely is, definitely. So what's, uh, what's the most common type of bad bug you see down there? Um, well, the, the common aphid is very is very um, is a bad bug, um, but we also see things called myrids, which are especially in the strawberries. Um, they're a particularly bad bug, and then there's mites, which are the two-spotted mite. Uh, people commonly call them spider mites, um, and they cause a lot of damage, and they're quite visible as well because they discolour the leaves and they can yeah kill plants. And anyone with indoor plants would know that spider mites are a real problem very quickly, um, and so yeah, they're just as bad in berries. Heartbreaking spider mites. As someone who's lost plants to spider mites, it's a tragic (laughs) event. It really is. I've lost. Yes, I'm a horticulturalist and I lose indoor plants to spider mites, and it always brings me to tears. Oh, there you go. (laughs) It's not just even the experts have it sometimes. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, So some of them kill plants. Some of them leave marks on fruit. Yes. Is it a problem when there's marks on fruit? Do people still buy them? What's the deal? No. Well, they do. Like there are some of the larger retailers that have different, uh, the odd bunch packaging and that. So for sort of blemishes and things like that, you can still market the fruit. But 90% of the fruit that goes to market has to be reasonably unblemished and in good, really fine condition. And that's set by the retailers, basically. They do have um, yeah, categories that you must satisfy, basically, in terms of so the fruit's good enough to pack. So that's yeah. a that's more a retail stand retailer standard rather than customers demanding that. Yeah, we don't really as a business to business farm, you don't really have too much contact with the general public unfortunately. It'd be great if we did. Um, but that's a completely different business model when you're in sort of yeah, commercial whole, uh, production of uh, fruit, then yeah, you're sort of doing it by the ton, not by the punnet. So everything's got to be perfect basically all the time. I think the thing about in, um, integrated pest management it is becoming really, really more important uh, in horticulture uh, because the uh, social license to operate is becoming uh, ever more important. Um, farms are often close to urban environments, so you really need to make sure that you cover your ESG credentials um, so that you the public have a confidence that you are actually doing the right thing by the environment and that the fruit that you're producing is really safe to eat Um, and as a grower that's always at the forefront of my mind at least that the sustainability of the industry is important otherwise I don't I won't have a job in the next 10 years and we've all we're always very mindful that the less you spray um, the better it is, really. So any tool we can use, and integrated pest management is a fantastic tool, um, yeah, is only a, only a positive for the industry. Pinata Farms' Ben Cook, talking all things bugs with Meg Powell among the rows of strawberries at Cressy. Coming up in just a moment on The Country Hour, we'll talk about kangaroo farming. ABC Listen. What would it take to survive the unsurvivable? Water was pouring into my cabin and rising very, very fast. In 1973, a ship disappeared off the coast of Tasmania, launching one of the greatest survival stories Australia has ever seen. We just survived hell. And all Malcolm might know who won the Court Hill Cup. <laughs> From the Dead, Season 2 of The Expanse podcast. Find it on the ABC Listen app. 
It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Australian graziers should be farming kangaroos alongside cattle to increase the supply of protein, limit carbon emissions and provide a new income stream to graziers. ANU Professor George Wilson says the Australian red meat sector deals with the dilemma of how to increase production as global demand rises while also working to meet its pledge of being carbon neutral by 2030 and millions of kangaroos are being left out of the equation. He says kangaroos could be incorporated into sheep and cattle grazing systems across Australia's rangelands, areas typically unsuitable for cropping. Co-benefits would include a reduction in soil compaction, an increase in plant cover and root biomass as the pressure exerted by the kangaroos on the ground is less than that of livestock. He's told Michael Condon we could use the lessons learned in the beef industry to set up a meat standard system for kangaroo meat to improve quality and price. One of the most interesting things about kangaroos, of which there are many, is that they don't produce much methane. Uh, It's about um, many times less than that, which comes 12 times less carbon dioxide equivalents per kilogram of meat compared to a kilogram of beef. And methane is a big problem, and the livestock industries are aware of this. It's um, methane from livestock is 9%. Yeah, 9% of all of Australia's carbon emissions. It's two-thirds the size of the emissions due to the transport sector. And this has been well recognised by Meat and Livestock Australia and the industry, and they're planning to be carbon neutral by 2030. But a recent report by CSIRO says that they're not going to get there, so that this problem will be a problem for Australia more generally because it will be difficult to meet our Paris targets at the moment. And of course methane is especially important because its global warming effects are very high. They've got lots of other advantages too. The skins are the best strength for weight of any leather. And so we've been arguing for a number of years and we believe this report's another plank in the argument is that sustainable use of kangaroos should be integrated into livestock production on the pastoral lands and that's what we're talking about we're talking about the 40 to 50 million kangaroos big number out there alongside livestock cattle sheep and goats on pastoralist properties at the moment they're substantially wasted in the hands of pastoralists there is some small economic benefit but it doesn't throw to the landholders and in the meantime that high population is doing considerable damage to sustainability and during the last drought about 13 million kangaroos the population went down by about 13 million many of those starved and this was a big stress to landholders they were able to destock their properties but then they watch the kangaroos dying. We talk about the, the protein available from kangaroos, but it just doesn't seem to be wanted. The consumer doesn't want it. The export market doesn't want it. I mean, how do we ramp that up? I mean, surely that's that's a real uh, issue no, too. It definitely is. Yeah, I, I mean, I've been banging on about this for about 15 years now. One of the key problems is when you go to graziers with these sorts of ideas and these opportunities... They say to your but we make so much more money out of livestock than we do out of uh, kangaroos. Or the only people who make any money out of commercial use of kangaroos are the kangaroo shooters themselves and the kangaroo processing industry. 
And so my retort to that is, well, let's use some of the skills and knowledge that's been accumulated by the meat industry, by the other red meat industries over the years. They manage the product down the value chain quite closely. And so all of those skills, which enable us to identify animals, to know what species they are, to know what sex they are, to know what age they are, none of that is currently used in the commercial kangaroo industry. And I think this has a big effect on the quality of the product that eventually uh, is available in supermarkets. And that's the point, of course. We're not trying to invent an in industry here. The kangaroo industry already exists. What we're saying is that the kangaroos should be worth a lot more money. There are techniques and skills that can be used that have been gleaned from the other livestock, the other red meat industries, apply those to kangaroos and um, take advantage of the fact that they're producing a low emission meat and that making better use of them instead of increasing the cattle population, which is the current proposal. So at the same time, under the existing situation, we've got proposals to increase the cattle population, at the same time attempt to achieve these low emission targets under carbon neutral, which, as I've said, we're just not going to do on current trends, according to CSIRO. So instead of increasing the livestock cattle population, let's make better use of the kangaroos that are out there, and in doing so, prevent the starvation of animals which will happen during the next drought, really big animal welfare issue, and also um, reduce the, the um, problem that overpopulation of kangaroos causes to land degradation. Talking to, um, I remember talking to Professor Michael Archer about this idea, and he was saying that he would like to see big kangaroo farms, but your proposal is different to that. You're saying kangaroos in, in like, you know, adjacent paddocks to, to cattle perhaps, that could work, and then, you know, uh, using the uh, same sort of supply chains. Is that is that the idea? So you're sort of seeing them sort yeah, of cohabit? I, I don't think I, uh, Mike and I talk about this matter often and uh, I think our ideas are largely synonymous. Because of this overpopulation and the low value of kangaroos, a number of other techniques are being used to try and reduce their impact on pastures and one of them is to fence them out. As um, Grazie is listening to this property, uh, this uh, program in Western Queensland, Western New South Wales and parts of Western Australia. Exclusion know, fencing, yeah. There's a lot of money being spent on Exclusion fences, both to control wild dogs, but particularly to give grazers the chance to better manage the kangaroos within those fences. So in a way, that's setting up the opportunity for a sense of a form of proprietorship of the animals within those fences. And that's why we think that we can move forward on this. If there is a form of proprietorship, which is the other big problem, of course, is that the kangaroos on a grazer's property don't belong to them, they belong to the Crown, to the state, unlike the livestock on their properties. That's Professor George Wilson from the Australian National University talking there to Michael Condon about farming kangaroos. 
Still to come on the country are the President of the Australian Hemp Council and traditional pain relief. Plus, we'll check the latest on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward. Thanks, Tony. A Queensland man will face the Devonport Magistrates Court today accused of trying to smuggle $5 million worth of illegal drugs into Tasmania. Police found four kilograms of methamphetamine known as ice and two kilograms of cocaine concealed in the boot of a car which arrived on the Spirit of Tasmania in Devonport on Friday. Tasmania's Integrity Commission has set up a new webpage to show whether the public sector is following its advice. The Integrity Commission investigates a range of misconduct allegations in the public sector, including nepotism, fraud and corruption. Whether or not the recommendations from those investigations are being followed will now be publicly displayed. The Australia Institute's calling on Tasmania's Environment Protection Authority not to renew salmon leases in Macquarie Harbour when they expire at the end of the month. The left-leaning think tank says evidence shows the industry is primarily responsible for impacting the endangered Morgean Skates environment in the harbour. And warm weather is already being felt by tens of thousands of racing fans at Flemington Racecourse. Irish galloper Vauban remains a favourite to take out this afternoon's cup. Retiring jockey Damien Oliver will have his final cup ride after Alan Kerr was passed fit this morning. More news at one. And let's check the latest on the weather with Alex Melitzis from the Bureau. Pretty warm day in Melbourne, I believe, for the uh, Cup this afternoon, Alex. Yes, it is. We do have a fair bit of warm air over the whole southeast of the country as we speak. And uh, look, the northern half of Tasmania and uh, inland parts of Tasmania are currently getting up to around 20 degrees. So a bit of warm air up there. But um, unfortunately, in the southeast, we've had a bit of extensive cloud and it looks like the sea breeze has kind of come into Hobart now. So I don't think we're going to get up to the 22 degrees that we're forecasting in Hobart. But uh, yeah, um, we are in a bit of a warm period for the rest of this week, uh, Tony. Uh, In terms of rainfall, we haven't actually seen uh, any significant rainfall uh, uh, over the yesterday or sort of since this, uh, since 9 a.m. this morning, however, looking at the radar, I can see that there are some isolated thunderstorms about the uh, the north uh, west as we speak. So there could be some isolated. Uh, heavier totals about the northwest um, as we speak. And for the rest of the day, Tony, we are expecting to see isolated showers pop up across uh, much of the state uh, during the day and into this evening, and even the odd little thunderstorm persisting around the west and inland areas. So so for the rest of the day, we could see around uh, two to five millimetres across uh, inland parts of Tasmania, mainly across the central highlands there, and generally less than one to two millimetres elsewhere. Then tomorrow, uh, we have a bit of a a humid, uh, warm and unsettled day uh, developing across uh, Tasmania. So uh, it'll start off fairly fine across much of the area, but um, we will start to see showers pop up uh, during the afternoon and become more widespread during the uh, yeah, later on in the afternoon. And uh, we could see thunderstorms across most parts, but particularly across the east, south and inland areas uh, tomorrow. And there could even be some heavier falls in those thunderstorms. So generally tomorrow, um, across the east, south and inland areas, we're looking at around 5 to 10 millimetres of rainfall. Uh, but we could see around 15 to 30 or maybe even 40 millimetres in isolated thunderstorms across those parts. Across the north tomorrow, we're only looking at sort of less than five millimetres of rainfall. Then uh, looking quickly further ahead, we have another warm uh, and a little bit of a showery day on Thursday. But look, we're generally looking at less than sort of five millimetres across most parts on Thursday. Then on Friday, uh, we start to get... uh, 
a pretty warm air get down towards the uh, southeast of the state on, on Friday. So parts of the Upper Derwent Valley are expected to reach uh, 29 or maybe even approach 30 degrees on on Friday in a uh, pretty warm northwesterly airstream. Should be fairly dry across the state though. And then things change on Saturday as a cold front crosses during the morning. So we'll see a cooler air, air mass uh, move over the state on Saturday and that will herald in much cooler air for the, uh, for the weekend and into next week with uh, temperatures expected to be around normal for much of next week. And warnings, Alex? There's no warnings um, today or tomorrow. And if you are going boating uh, tomorrow, we are expecting uh, winds in the west to be south to southeasterly, around 10 to 15 knots. Elsewhere tomorrow, we're looking at northeasterly winds, around 10 to 20 knots. Swell uh, in the west and south tomorrow, we're looking at a southwesterly swell of around one and a half to two metres. In the north, a westerly swell below one uh, below half a metre. And in the east tomorrow, a northeasterly swell developing uh, below one metre and a southerly below one metre as well. And currently, the Cape Sorrel Wave Rider buoy is sitting on around uh, one and a half metres. That's a southwesterly with a period of around seven seconds. And in the east, the Mariah Island buoy is currently sitting on around one metre, and that's a southerly with a period of around six seconds. Terrific. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Tony. Alex Melitsis from the Bureau with the latest. We'll talk to the President of the Hemp Council of Australia in just a moment. We are one, but we are many, and from all the lands on earth we come, we share a dream, and sing with one more. You're listening to ABC Radio. On air, online, on digital and the ABC listener. This is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. On the text line about kangaroo farms, Joyce says, don't use a native animal to feed us humans. The only reason they're starving is because humans have taken over their homes. Time humans stopped breeding. Thanks, Joy. The president of the National Peak Body for the Industrial Hemp Industry says $5 million in research funds is needed per year. Tasmanian grower Tim Schmidt says the 2.5 million five-year Australia industrial hemp program of research, which has been launched, was an important start, however. He spoke to reporter Kim Honan at an event at the Southern Cross University in Lismore. The Hemp Council itself is a seven-member body. Each of those members represent associations in each state and the Northern Territory. And we are developing a framework where we're creating a lot of communication and advocating for uh, regulatory change in the industry. And um, in relation to an event such as this here today, um, extra support for research and development in the industry from government. And what sort of extra research, aside from the $2.5 million that AgriFutures has funded today, does the industry really need? Oh, it needs buckets more than for that. We're looking at um, supporting a policy of um, uh, $5 million per annum at a federal level that could be leveraged against other state and uh, private industry uh, support for, the, for, for research and development. But, uh, but this... Um, launch here for the of the two and a half million dollars over five years it's small but it's a really important start and there's four themes that it goes across which are uh, very well researched and designed uh, based on the uh, rdna strategic plan that the council was involved with agri futures in formulating uh, some a year or so ago 
What sort of regulatory change are you advocating, lobbying for? I can tell you exactly what we need is we need hemp removed from the national poisons schedule, full stop. And that will give the states uh, free range to legislate to take an opportunity of all the whole plant uses of the hemp plant and I'd just like to point out that's with the exception of THC. And how close are you to getting it removed? Oh we've still got a way to go but what we're doing is um, through uh, a series of groups that we've set up um, with involves about 100 individuals supporting the um, uh, research and uh, development of these groups. They're based on food, fibre, fodder, extracts, carbon and agronomy. And all these groups are, are designed to have people that have got intimate knowledge in this area to help put, build a business case to indicate to the government the uh, monetary benefit that Australian farmers will gain with the change in this legislation. It'll open up a whole new bunch of um, products and markets available for Australian farmers in, through the hemp industry. And unless this legislation does change, can the industry really grow to the projections that we're hearing? Oh, look, there's still opportunities there, but um, it's sort of uh, half-choking the industry. Uh, so we need to maintain uh, we need to develop an industry that has sustainability and profitability and that means deriving revenue streams from all opportunities or all parts of the plant so that includes um, uh, extracts from the resin of the leaf uh, that have got non-psychoactive non-drug nothing to do with drugs it's just uh, industrial applications um, health food food preservatives um, natural insecticides and then the uh, that adds uh, revenue streams to the other enterprises that relate to, the, say, the food or the fodder or et cetera, and, and the fibre. And, um, and so you'll have an Australian grower that will be able to uh, make a much greater return per hectare of, uh, of a hemp crop and provide so much more market products to market uh, to help uh, give the consumer access to uh, things that are of great benefit anyway. So it's a win-win-win situation all around. We just need the government to recognise this and take action so that we can move forward. And do you grow hemp yourself? I've been growing hemp for about 10 years um, and we've got a vertically integrated business where we grow our own hemp seed and market it ourselves. And what got you into it? Well, I, I read an article in the local rural paper in Tasmania and um, about a field day that occurred there and it piqued my interest and I made some inquiries and, and at the time with our operation, uh, our land is quite low and, and wet. It gets very wet in the winter. Um, you can't you know, plant oats or canola or anything because it just gets waterlogged. But uh, the feature with hemp was that it's a late, late spring plant. It's only a 120-day crop, so it's in and out. Um, so it fitted really nicely in our rotations. And then I discovered that um, uh, we usually follow, have it follow potatoes. Potatoes um, really destroy the soil, uh, particularly the soil structure, compaction and so on. Uh, and the hemp goes a long way to uh, restructuring and improving that soil. So that's sort of really the original reason that I got into the industry. And then... I saw all these opportunities as I learnt more and more and, um, and, and I just can't believe that they haven't been taken advantage of and uh, so I've been embarked on a 
uh, long-term education process to try and uh, get community and government along with... Uh, there's many other people, uh, many other passionate people apart from myself uh, that we're all bringing together to help get the message across and get these changes so that we can get an industry, re a really robust, profitable, sustainable industry um, for Australian farmers. How do you sell your crop? What form is it sold in? Seed or...? Fibre? Well, um, our, our enterprise is uh, seed for food, and so we just have a basic range of seed, oil and flour, and, um, and then we've got a couple of... Well, I've got hemp beer, <laughs> but, uh, but that's, um, that's just our operation. Like, there's about 50,000 different applications, but as a, a, um, a Canadian lecturer explained at one time, 50,000 applications, show me one that's profitable. And that's what we're working on, and that's what this research is so important. Um, why it's so important is because we need to uh, develop those uh, new technologies and understandings to be able to make it more profitable. Tim Schmidt, the president of the Australian Hemp Council and Tasmanian farmer, talking there to reporter Kim Honan at an event at the Southern Cross University in Lismore, talking about the expansion of the hemp industry, a $2.5 million five-year Australian industrial hemp program of research launched last week. But uh, as Tim said, you need more. Always need more. The meat industry in Australia is hoping the high-level talks in China will lead to some good news for a number of abattoirs in the country. There's still 10 abattoirs which are locked out of exporting meat to China. So could they be next in line for some good news? Patrick Hutchinson is the head of the Australian Meat Industry Council and he's talking here to Matt Brand. It shouldn't be very difficult for us to turn uh, all of our systems back on. Beef and lobster are the only two really that are left. And turning back on beef is eight establishments and China already has all the information. So it's really about the bureaucracy being able to turn that back on. So politicians can shake hands, but bureaucrats are the ones that flick buttons. So we really need that to be happening as opposed to the handshaking. What have the last few years been like for those abattoirs that have been locked out of this trade? It's been exceptionally difficult, obviously, Matt. Um, it's not just been about being locked out of a market of that magnitude because, um, you know, we are a very good uh, industry, a very sustainable industry. We are able to pivot exceptionally well. Markets were open to other abattoirs to be going to China. So, you know, with a dwindling supply and a massively world record high livestock price, it ensured that people were being quite choosy where they were putting product and putting it and, and where they were going to market. So we were in some ways somewhat lucky to be in that position. However, um, you don't want to be losing market share. And uh, unfortunately, with those guys being out, Australia actually lost market share to our ally, the US beef industry. So it's now about that circle changing, that cycle is changing. They're going through what we went through three years ago. And as such, um, it's about our ability to take back that market share. So really, you know, they've been able to keep going. They've been able to withstand all of those pressures and they're ready to, uh, to, to go back into that market. Because is it fair to say that if you just looked at the amount of red meat that's been exported to China this year, you'd be forgiven for thinking there's no ban in place at all? That's right, and and this is where the technical aspect of the of the temporary suspensions has come, as opposed to really uh, the bans that we've seen elsewhere, whether it be on like on hay and timber. Ours is a technical nature which has uh, suspended um, in individual establishments, 
whilst other China-listed establishments have been able to, uh, uh, to, to, you know, for want of a better term, fill the void. All of that being said, though, we do have an opportunity as well with the relationship strengthening the way that it is to also speak about hopefully post the switch being turned back on for those establishments that are suspended. Also now going back to the joint statement that we signed in 2017, which said uh, and uh, allowed for an extra 15 establishments in Australia to also have their licences actually created for China. That that as well will help us in regards to getting further market share. How big has China become for Australia's red meat industry in the last five years or so? Pre-COVID, we sent 300,000 tonnes of beef to China in 2019 on its own. Uh, China still only makes up probably um, at its at its peak around about 28% of our total exports. Patrick Hutchinson, CEO of the Australian Meat Industry Council, speaking to Matt Brown about the 10 abattoirs in the country, still banned from exporting meat to China. Eight of those beef processors, the other two are lamb and mutton processors. Now, imagine a croc biting off your finger when you're a long way from medical help. That's what happened years ago to Nayukina man, John Watson, when he was out hunting in WA's far north with his son, Anthony. To cope with the pain, John chewed up some bark from nearby trees and applied it to the wound. That experience was the catalyst for the development of a new bush medicine pain relief gel. The crocodile, he just took my finger and I didn't, I didn't feel it. But I saw the water go go red, and then the green, that red colour is my fingers were blood. Then straight away I got out of there, and I went for my tree. I know the my tree is a numbing, numbing medicine, Aboriginal medicine. So we used, used to use that. But anyhow, I used it. I chewed it up, and regardless, my finger was bleeding, but I put, them, put my finger in my mouth put the medulla on it, stopped numbing it all right, but it wasn't, didn't stop the bleeding. I went to another tree, I got a sap and put it on it to stop it from bleeding. At the time I was living in Derby and Mr. Marshall was working for the land council at the time. I showed him my finger, the crocodiles took my finger and he had an idea that, oh, we should... Used to go and take this medicine to uh, Griffith University. So he did that. So years went on by, went to Griffith, then um, um, they put a mice in there in the cage with a hot plate and they injected this medicine into it. And um, yeah, Paul told me that it was stronger than the morphine. Wow. Had you ever used. This bark before, had you used this tree before for pain relief or was it the first time when you lost your finger? Yeah, he's used his bark before um, in, in, um, and after the event. So um, it's we sort of, when we do have incidents, that we revert to use in this traditional medicine. Anthony, you're, you're John's son. What did you think when you heard your dad had lost his finger? Yeah, um, I was right next to him um, in the water. Um, when he left his wolf finger out of the water um, and, yeah, was to take him out and uh, tend to his wounds. Um, yeah, so he had his bones sticking out and his yeah, fingers missing, a bit gruesome. Um, but, yeah, we um, got his finger um, 
covered with medicine and to numb the pain. How pleased were both of you when you were looking around and you saw this mangrove tree and you knew you'd be able to use it right then and there? Yeah, we got a bunch of them along the river and um, it was easy access to get to it. So, yeah, um, just quick reaction. John, you mentioned that it was pretty instant pain relief. You had to do a little bit to stop the blood. What does your finger look like now? It's shorter than the others. <laughs> yeah, that's a little stump. Yes, a little fingernail in it. Now, you mentioned that your story and your experiences came to the attention of Professor Ronald Quinn from Griffith University. Are you excited your knowledge of traditional medicine is potentially now being used in for, for all Australians and maybe even worldwide? Yeah, well, it did open up that possibility to um, go that stage. And, yeah, we got to learn about IP um, and what makes up the product, the compounds within it. So we got to learn a lot. Um, and that's part of the development that we need to move towards. Um, but, yeah, it's been an exciting process to get where it is now. Anthony, can you tell us a bit about where that where that process is? We're still in development stage. Hopefully that... Um, we will keep advancing with that process. But yeah, back in when we first started, um, we didn't know anything about it and we've learned a lot along the process um, um, and have, trying to work towards commercialisation in, in a big scale is um, uh, going to be our next step. Yeah, and as you say, that development on a really big scale, I, I think the, the aim is to potentially use some of this for athletes. Is that right? Hopefully, yeah, we can get to um, use the product for yeah people that um, have scratches, injuries, and and such. So, who knows where it's going to go? It has opened up the door for others to actually go down this industry, and we want to promote the traditional knowledge to actually get into this industry. So, this is a educational process as well for everyone, and they could look at um, the stuff that we've gone through towards trying to um, help with producing products. As you mentioned, it's it's a traditional medicine, but using westernised science to identify these these compounds within the bark that have the anti-inflammatory and pain relief properties. But then, getting to a point where it is commercialised whilst maintaining Aboriginal ownership, that collaboration process, how important is it? It's been a lot of benefit towards actually knowing that a product can be safe that it doesn't poison anyone, that um, we know that traditionally that it hasn't harmed any of our mob over the centuries of using it. But yeah, the, the reinforcement from the science side um, um, acknowledge that um, yeah, it's a product that you can use without harming anyone. So what's next? We're going back to the Kimberley and hopefully that um, we probably may be ambassadors towards getting other regions and the rest of the Kimberley towards opening up their products towards um, wanting to get into the same position where we are at. John Watson and his son Anthony speaking there with Tara DeLangraft. Those pain relief properties of the bark may be available for Olympic athletes in the form of a gel thanks to a partnership between John's community and Griffith University. That's our country hour for today. Catch you after midday tomorrow.